Now I invite you to pray with me and to pray for me. Lord God, take my words this morning and speak through them. Take our hearts this morning and speak to them. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence and we invite you to bring conviction to our hearts through your living word that we will that you will initiate healing and transformation in our lives. We pray this all for the glory of your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at our gospel reading from Matthew. And as I prepared for this, my sense is that relationships today have become a commodity in this social media driven culture, a culture where one keeps good relationships and dispatches the bad ones, good and bad. The easy thing to do when someone disagrees with you or offends you is simply to ghost them. Don't respond at all or to cancel them. The tendency is to keep the good. Keep the people that agree with you, who see things the way you see them. Cancel the rest. I submit to you, while we want to call it cancel culture, I think it's got a different name, especially in the church. It's avoidance culture. We avoid conflict. We avoid disagreement. We avoid dealing with hurt. This can be seen in how we communicate during disagreement Or during conflict, it's much easier to fire off a text message or an instant message or an email than to have a face-to-face conversation. Why talk in person when you can just type what you really want to say and hit send or just ignore it, cancel it, avoid it? So many of our younger generation, most of their communication with others has been through text through social media and they're not prepared for interpersonal conflict or disagreement. I've seen this with my own children. When there needs to be a hard conversation, there's great anxiety because they're out of practice. Something that we all need to work on. Back in the day, (laughs) I can't believe I'm old enough to actually say that. (laughs) Back in my day during my business career, the internet was new. Cell phones were still a box in a car that only certain people had. So your options for handling conflict were a handwritten note. You could send an email, but again, this was very new. A telephone call, which involved a little bit more contact, but face-to-face was the preferred. Of course, you could avoid direct interaction if you got lucky with the phone call and they didn't pick up. Or with the new technology of the email, but sometimes those messages went badly. Because as I recall, I would send the message on the voicemail or I would send the email with all of my passion and what I was feeling. And then the regret would set in. Did I really just say that? How many sitcom episodes from the 80s and 90s were focused on the issue of a regretted message, one that they were trying to call back? You know, you had people climbing in windows to delete the voicemail or on the answering machine. Or, I'm not going to ask for hands, but how many of you made the phone call, please don't listen to that message? (laughs) Or you sent the email, please ignore the previous email. I I, I want to say it a little differently. 
In this current culture, including in the church, I believe we've lost touch with the most healthy way to handle hurt and to handle conflict. And that's Jesus's way. Matthew 18 is a well-known scripture for dealing with conflict and dealing with hurt. It's cited, but often it's ignored. I've seen times that Matthew 18 has been misunderstood and misapplied, making things more hurtful rather than helping. I propose to you this morning that Matthew 18 isn't all about conflict. Yes, it involves conflict, but it's primarily about relationships. It's primarily about reconciliation. I believe that the church, the big C church, the church of Jesus Christ, is in need of a refresher course on Matthew 18. And as we are part of that big C church, Redeemer, we are also in need of that refresher course. That's why I'm here. (laughs) Today I'm going to offer you my attempt at a refresher course, Broken Relationship 101. So the context of Matthew 18, the disciples already know they've been told by Jesus that he's the Messiah. And now they're on their way back to Jerusalem where they're expecting him to be enthroned, even though he's told them twice now that he will die when he gets to Jerusalem. And after three days rise from the grave, they still don't get it. They don't understand The beginning of Matthew 18 has the disciples asking, Jesus, who's going to be greatest in your kingdom? They still don't get it. As Jesus seeks to correct them about his kingdom, this wasn't part of our reading this morning, but it's verse 7 of chapter 18. Jesus, seeking to correct them, says this, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now, I understand the first part, woe to the world. This world, temptations come and they lead to sin and bad behavior. Woe to the world. But then he says, it's necessary that temptations come. Why? Why is it necessary for temptations Well, I believe all of Scripture testifies to what temptations bring in those that are faithful. It brings the opportunity to confess and repent. It brings failure if you lean into it. But there's an opportunity for growth and for sanctification and for healing. And many scholars see that as what Jesus is saying here. Temptations are an opportunity for growth. They're an opportunity for repentance, for transformation. I believe that verse is crucial for our understanding of our reading today, later in Matthew 18, on relationships. Our reading at verse 15 occurs in the immediate context of that statement that Jesus made. And that's for two reasons. First, conflict and disagreement is going to give you temptations. Whichever side of the conflict or hurt or disagreement you're on, there will be temptations to sin. Temptations to pride, to defensiveness, to judgment, to anger, to resentment. Secondly, 
There's a temptation just to avoid the disagreement, avoid the conflict. But as you'll see, avoidance of those difficult conversations is an avoidance of an opportunity to grow in faith, for God to work in your life. So now we turn our attention to our reading. Verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus, continuing to correct them, says, if your brother, if your fellow Christian, he's talking to the disciples, those closest followers of his. If someone within your community sins against you, go and tell them their fault. So this is in the church and it's a sin. It's an offense against And looking at Jesus's response to this offense, it's a significant offense. So it's in the church and it's not meant to be a scolding as I've been taught and instructed. It's bringing the offense to their attention. It's giving the charitable assumption with your brother or sister in Christ. I don't know that you intended this, but this is this is what happened. I want to talk to you about this. It's starting a conversation. And if you look at that, it's in private, one-on-one, face-to-face, dealing direct. And one's posture is crucial. I've been instructed that there's not to be attacking, but you're to come humbly. It's a vulnerable place to say, I've been hurt by something that you did, because it gives them the opportunity To hurt again. It's keeping the main thing in focus. This is all about relationship. Restoration of relationship. Because if the meeting is successful, what does Jesus say? If he or she listens to you, you have gained your brother or your sister. There's restored fellowship. That's the goal. It's not just about dealing with conflict or about having somebody say, I'm sorry. The ultimate goal is restored fellowship. The ultimate goal is reestablishment of trust and reestablishment of respect. Verse 16, Jesus says, but if he or she does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus acknowledges this may not be successful. Take one or two others along as witnesses. And this is in line with the Old Testament teaching from Moses that every charge would be supported by two or three witnesses, not just by one. These are others who are witnesses, who can see both sides. They understand and they can thus serve as mediators. These aren't just those who see your side. But they're those that see the big picture. That can help. So verse 17. If the person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you a Gentile or a tax collector. So if the person refuses, it's a refusal to restore relationship. Jesus says, tell it to the church. We have a hard time understanding what Jesus is saying here because 
Tell it to the church means stand up and tell it to, you know, the 100 or 200 or how many people do you worship with? Remember the context. And when you study the New Testament, you see this is only the second and the only one of two times that Jesus uses this term ecclesia. He uses it when he talks to Peter. Peter, who has said Jesus is the Christ. You are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, community. And then here. So Jesus is talking about the community, and he's talking to a very small community, in fact. So this is a small, intimate group. The community is called to be a witness then to the broken relationship, that intimate group. They must know about it. And Jesus says the offending person refusing to restore relationship is to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus makes it very clear here that they're to be treated differently. But through this process, reconciliation is of utmost importance in the church. The process toward reconciliation is noted to be difficult. Otherwise, Jesus would have just given point number one and it would always happen. Jesus knows his own followers. And it's acknowledged that this process towards reconciliation offers opportunities to both parties on both sides for conviction, repentance, sanctification and transformation. And you may be thinking, what do you mean on both sides? Because isn't this about the offender? St. Augustine can help us there. St. Augustine is a city. St. Augustine is a person. St. Augustine can help us because he saw the bigger picture, even better than many of his peers as an early church father. Augustine taught that there is no human desire that's not disordered. All of our desires are disordered. He had a very strong view of original sin, that everything about us is tainted. There is no person that's perfect. And since we are entirely tainted by original sin, even forgiven, that original sin is still in us. There can be no perfect understanding in our human minds. Even every thought that we have is tainted by our sin nature. There's no human insight that's descended from heaven that remains unsoiled by our sinful nature. We tend to apply our own stuff to all of that and come to our conclusions. All of our thoughts, therefore, are suspect in St. Augustine's eyes. So while the offender is given the opportunity to repent, so is the offended. The offended may be sure this is all about them. But there's growth for both. In true Christian mediation, both parties are invited to own their behaviors or choices that led to the broken relationship, to the disagreement. Now, the offender, you come to someone and you say, this is how you hurt me or or, this is how I was hurt. And the offender may say, but you did this. And that may be true. Even when you're convinced the other's solely at fault, you may not have realized, oh, I did participate in this brokenness. That's why it's important to remain humble and open before the Lord. 
to where he may invite you to confess, to repent, and to grow. Because remember, this isn't about right and wrong. This is about reconciliation and restoration. Returning to Jesus' conclusion, if the other refuses to participate in the restoration process, then they're to be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. And I believe that's widely misunderstood. What Jesus was saying there was that they are to be treated differently than those that are in the group because there's an unreconciled relationship. It doesn't mean they're to be kicked out or they're to be ostracized. I've seen Matthew 18 used in that way. Think about this. Jesus said, treat them as tax collector and a Gentile. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and Gentiles? He loved them. He witnessed to them. He healed them. He invited them to repent. Turn and sin no more. He invited them to believe in him. So when one refuses to repent or reconcile, Jesus teaches, treat them differently. Be aware of their sin. Be aware of their need for spiritual healing, the change in relationship, but continue to pursue them. Continue to love them. In my own life, I've had others come to me, both in my business career and in this career, bravely and vulnerably letting me know how I may have hurt them or sinned against them. In their humility and their vulnerability, they gave me an opportunity to grow, to receive God's correction, and to allow God to work in me to bring transformation. And in the times when those things went well, our relationship became a light and a testimony to God's grace. I've also been on the other side where I went to others seeking to identify how they hurt or how I was hurt by something that they did. There have been times when, in the midst of those conversations, I've been made aware of things that I didn't do well, or that I wasn't aware of that I had done that wounded that other person, that contributed to the broken relationship. Where God invited me, I thought it was all about the other, God invited me to own my own stuff. Where they pointed out how they felt they were also wronged, and it wasn't just offensiveness because the spirit inside me brought conviction, allowed me to see my own wrong. And in that moment, I had a choice. I could double down. That doesn't matter. You did. Or I could receive God's correction. Now, I haven't always gotten it right the first time. Sometimes pride and emotion initially keep me from hearing the Spirit. But I'm grateful for God's grace that gives me second chances to hear the Holy Spirit's conviction where I could seek reconciliation and receive God's correction and grow. I truly believe that conflict and disagreement is one of the greatest opportunities for your growth and for the health and growth of the church. I challenge you to resist the temptation to pride. I know I'm right. Or to ghost or to cancel. If you don't bring it up, you're like the watchman in the Ezekiel passage that didn't say what God was trying to get you to bring up. Because it's not just about you, it's an opportunity for the other. Heed God's invitation to engage. 
Jesus doesn't give his followers a choice regarding reconciliation. He doesn't say, well, unless it's too hard, I'd like you to do this. Or unless they really don't understand. Jesus says, this is how you handle it. In the community of faith, this is what you do. So church, you're called to go to the brother or sister that offended you or sinned against you or hurt you. You're called to receive the one that comes to you. When you go to them, state your hurt and listen to their response. Remember, it's about reconciliation. It's the start of a conversation. In going, you're giving them the charitable assumption. It's a chance to love them, to stay present, and to seek reconciliation. Resist the temptation to self-righteously defend yourself. I challenge you to humble yourself, humble yourself first before the Lord. Examine your heart and be open as you enter into those conversations or as those conversations come to you. Conflict and disagreement and hurt is one of the enemy's most effective tools in keeping God's people from growth. In separating and dividing the church. In causing division between brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters in families. I believe that if you diligently seek after Jesus' guidance, that's what our psalm was all about. Psalmist says, make me go in the path of your commandments, for therein is my desire. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetous desires. We're to seek after God's word, and Jesus' word is God's word. If you diligently seek after Jesus' guidance in Matthew 18, God will bring sanctification, growth, and health to you and to the others. To his people, to his church. And as the world witnesses the miracles of reconciliation, the kingdom of God will grow. Jesus gives us the tools. And I'm closing today with Paul's reading what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, because I believe this encompasses what our posture is to be as we enter into any conversation like this. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, 
but overcome evil with good. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.